This story is a marvel and a wonder all on its own. But as a Christian reading this story, of course, I can't help but think of Jesus' journey up the mountain with his young assistants, as recorded, for example, in Mark 9. We have the cloud, we have the voice of God, we have special revelation, and we have overwhelming presence. Moses appears in that story, too, alongside Elijah, but at the end, they disappear, and the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. As great as Moses was, as great as Elijah was, they all bow before the ultimate prophet, the ultimate teacher, the ultimate word from on high. Thanks be to God. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. There is an awful lot in this story that reminds us, or perhaps better, that anticipates the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and yet the story is fascinating in and of itself. It is surprisingly practical and detailed. It is bloody and ancient and mysterious, and yet it communicates very clearly God's desire and intention to dwell among the people he redeems. There is gospel hope and encouragement all over this story, even as it comes to us in an Old Testament form. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 24. When you're reading through a book as long and complex as the book of Exodus, it's helpful from time to time to pause and to zoom out, as it were, to be reminded of where you are in the ebb and flow of the narrative. As we've discussed a few times, the book of Exodus has two major sections. The first half tells the story of how God redeemed his people from the land and from the power of Egypt. Second half details the nature and structure of their relationship to God moving forward. Chapter 19 functions as a hinge between the first part of the book and the second part. In chapter 19, God told Moses to speak to the people on his behalf and to say to them, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19 four to six. So God says, I saved you. I delivered you. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here, God is laying out the conditions of the covenant. If you want to walk with me, if you want to serve me, if you want to be my representatives, my priests and ambassadors to the nations, then walk this way. And everyone was eager to do it. Exodus 19.8 records all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're in, they said, right? Sign us up. We're on board. Fair enough. So later in Exodus 19, Moses goes up and down the mountain in order to begin explaining to the people the nature of this covenant relationship. In chapter 20, he receives the heart and center of it all, known to us as the Ten Commandments. Then from chapter 21, verse 1 through to 24, 18, 
we have what scholars usually refer to as the Book of the Covenant. Now, some say that the Book of the Covenant only goes to the end of chapter 23, whereas most Jewish scholars tend to consider chapter 24 as being part of it as well. But either way, you have in that section a group of laws that apply and expand upon the Ten Commandments. It would seem then that Moses came down with the Ten Commandments. Here in chapter 24, he's called to go back up, so obviously he came down. So he came down with the Ten Commandments and probably sat for several judicial sessions. He began to apply the laws to actual cases that were brought to him, and he received further divine revelation with respect to this application and extension of the law, and this was all recorded in some sense, either orally or in terms of session minutes, for lack of a better term. But now, here in chapter 24, having accumulated all this content, there is a call now for it to be written down and ratified through a formal ritual and covenant meal. That's where we are in the story. So let's zoom back in now and hear the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Now, as we've seen before, there are three zones, as it were, at Mount Sinai. There is the zone at the foot of the mountain, where the people as a whole are gathered. Then there is this nearer zone, where Aaron, his sons, and the elders are, And then there is a holy of holies, you might say, into which only Moses may enter, and that only at the direct invitation of the Lord. And of course, that pattern will be adopted in both the future tabernacle and temple design. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. Verses 3 to 8 are where many Bible readers can get lost. There's a lot of up and down, and the story isn't told with the same sort of strict chronology that we're used to. Sometimes, dischronological elements are spliced into biblical stories for thematic reasons. We've talked about that before. So if you're feeling lost here, that's okay. Hebrew scholar Nahum Sarna explains the structure of this section very well, and I think it's worth quoting him at length here. He mentions that Moses has now orally given the sum and substance of the law. Having heard the stipulations, they now orally bind themselves to obedience, using the same formula of affirmation as before. The stipulations are then put into writing, and a sacrificial ritual and a blood rite take place, verses 4 to 6. 
The written document is read to the people, who again make a collective pledge of affirmation and loyalty, whereupon the blood rite is completed, verses 7 to 8. The representatives of the people ascend partway up the mountain and there experience a manifestation of the divine majesty. A solemn covenantal meal concludes the entire episode, verses 9 to 11, closed quote. So that's the big picture in terms of what is going on in these verses. Now, in terms of the young men who serve as priests or cultic assistants in the story, you'll remember that we mentioned when discussing the redemption of the firstborn that initially it appears as though the priesthood was made up of the firstborn sons of all the families in Israel. It was only after the incident with the golden calf in verse 32 that the priesthood was restricted to the tribe of Levi. The dashing of the blood mentioned in verse 8 was likely intended to remind people of the severity of breaking the oaths that were being made in this covenant ceremony. Most covenant ceremonies in the ancient world involved some kind of self-maledictory curse. Thus shall it be done to me if I break the oath that I make today in your presence, that sort of thing. Of course, the full meaning and symbolism will not be understood until Jesus takes the cup at Passover and uses words from Exodus 24, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It is the blood of Jesus that ultimately pays for all our covenant transgressions. Thanks be to God. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here for a second because that kind of reminds me of a discussion we had way back in Genesis 15, which was more than a year ago now. But in that chapter, there's a really powerful vision of God walking through the pathway of blood under the figure of a smoking pot and a flaming torch, and in essence, assuming responsibility for our covenant obligations, which is what you were just talking about here. Can you walk us through that again? Because that symbolism, once it's unpacked and explained— really makes the essence of the gospel pop, or at least it did for me anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham to do a very unusual thing. He told him to gather up a bunch of sacrificial animals and to cut them all in half and to pull them apart and lay them out in such a way so as to create a pathway of blood. So obviously you have to visualize that. Abraham slaughters a cow and pulls it apart and he carries half of it to the left and then half it to the right about six feet away. Then he does the same thing with a goat, laying half of it on the right and half of it on the left. And, and, and then he wrings the neck of a dove and sprinkles the path with its blood and lays its body on one side and does the same thing with a pigeon and lays it on the other side. Yeah, so that's <laughs> a lot of blood. I, I hope none of our listeners are eating breakfast right now. That is a lot of blood. <laughs> and, and that's kind of the point. It, it creates a pathway of blood. There would be lines and, and drips of blood running like the rungs of a ladder from one side to the other. And the message that Abraham was supposed to be getting from all of this is that it is going to be costly and deadly to rebel against God. The cost of violating this covenant would be death, a painful, bloody, brutal death. Now, as I said back when we were doing our episode on Genesis 15, that was standard operating procedure at the time. This is how kings or emperors cut their covenants with lesser lords. This was a loyalty oath. So the king was saying, I will protect you and govern you wisely and in return. I expect loyalty and obedience from you. And if you betray me or rise up against me, it will cost you your life. 
So God was speaking to Abraham in ways that he could understand. He's saying, I am your king, Abraham. I'm your God. And you, as a representative of humankind, are my subject. This is my world. I will provide for you and govern you and teach you, but you need to obey me. And the cost of disobedience will be death. So Abraham was supposed to walk through that pathway of blood, wasn't he? He was supposed to say, in essence, I assume responsibility for my side of the covenant. I understand that disloyalty and disobedience will end in death. That was supposed to be his role in this very dramatic ceremony. Yeah, exactly right. And and that's where the twist comes in. Right when we expect Abraham to walk slowly and somberly through the bloody parts on the pathway of blood, something else happens that would have been absolutely shocking to the ancient reader. Genesis 15, 17 says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So God, under the figures of the smoking pot and the flaming torch, God himself walks through the pieces. God walks the pathway of blood, symbolizing God's promise here to guarantee our side of this incredible covenant. He says, I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself, and I will pay for your covenant failures in my own blood. That's the gospel. The gospel is God saying, I'm not changing the deal. The deal was always that the blessings of heaven will be released and stewarded on the earth through obedient human intermediaries. I'm not changing the system just because human beings have fallen. The deal stays. But what I am going to do is guarantee your side of this deal. I will do what you no longer can. I will keep your side of the deal. And that's what Jesus did. He obeyed the law perfectly. He obeyed God perfectly as a truly human person. And he died a very brutal, bloody death to satisfy our covenant obligations, thus fulfilling all the conditions necessary for the promises and blessings of God to be released and stewarded on the earth. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So everything God ever promised to human beings is now possessed entirely by Jesus Christ and available to us through Jesus Christ. Again, that's the heart of the heart of the heart of the Christian gospel. So that is promised and pictured in Genesis 15, but then this whole idea is further developed here in Exodus 24. Unpack that for us a little bit. Yeah, so the Apostle Paul says that the Mosaic Covenant, or the Sinai Covenant, was added because of transgressions. He says that in Galatians 3.19, for example. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, close quote. So the Mosaic Law, which we're reading about here, was added because of transgressions. It was an added feature, you might say, or an additional mercy. The point is that it was not primary. The promise to Abraham was primary. The promise to Abraham is foundational. That's the essence of the story here. The Bible is not ultimately about law. It is ultimately about promise. It is about grace. But the law is not opposed to promise. In fact, the law was given to facilitate the promise. The law was given to restrain the sinful impulses of the people so as to safeguard the line of promise. Remember, Paul said that the law was added because of transgression 
until the promised offspring should come. That's Jesus. So the law held Israel together until Jesus arrived to fulfill the covenant and unlock all the promises of God. So the law was not the enemy of promise. It was an aid to promise. So in Exodus 24, we are seeing the gift of the law, and it is tied back to the essence of the promise through the symbolic sprinkling of the blood in verse 8. Exodus 24, verse 8 says, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That was a reminder, a very physical, tangible, bloody reminder, I imagine, particularly for the people standing in the front row, that this covenant is serious business. Being in relationship with God is no casual thing. He is holy. So sin is not going to fly. Sin, wickedness, rebellion, disobedience, the price of those things is death. But on the other hand, the blood would also have reminded them that God had already promised to fulfill their end of the bargain. He would not let them utterly fail. He would not allow them to ruin the plan. At some point in the future, he would come and do for them all that this covenant required. And that part of the story culminates in the words of Jesus at the Last Supper when he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. So that's the new deal. Jesus says, my life and my death have fulfilled the conditions of the old deal. The new deal is you trust in me, you abide in me, and through me, you will receive all the promises and blessings of God. That's the gospel. That's the line of divine promise and grace that begins in Genesis 3.15, is depicted in Genesis 15, is assisted in Exodus 24 by the giving of the law, and that is finally realized and fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Yeah, wow. That is awesome. And again, I think it's a reminder of why it's so important for us to read these Old Testament stories because they kind of function like illustrations in advance. Hearing these stories and visualizing them in our minds helps us now to hear the stories of Jesus in a new light, I think. When I sit through a communion service the next time, I think I'm going to have this ceremony and that storyline running through my mind, and I think it's going to help me better understand the essence of that New Testament experience. Well, amen to that. That's that's the whole goal for what we're trying to do here. And, and I hope that our listeners find this as helpful as you have. Yeah, so good. All right, let's jump back into the story here. That was a long intermission, but a really helpful one. We're going to jump back in at verse 9. So right after Moses sprinkles the people with the blood, there's a bit of a ceremony now involving Moses, Aaron, the sons of Aaron, and the elders of Israel. Let's hear about that now. Then Moses and Aaron... Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, anytime the Bible speaks of people seeing God, we may be confused because the Bible says in Exodus 33, verse 20, that no one can see God and live. D.A. Carson is helpful here. He says, 
Whenever Old Testament writers say that certain people saw God or the like, inevitably there are qualifications. For as this book says elsewhere, no one can look on the face of God and live. Thus, when we are told that the elders saw the God of Israel, the only description is something like a pavement under his feet. God remains distanced. Yet, this is a glorious display, graciously given to deepen alliance, while a special mediating role is preserved for Moses, who alone goes all the way up the mountain. Close quote. So we see God calling Moses alone further up the mountain in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So here we see yet another trip up the mountain for Moses. We can safely assume that the elders and Aaron and his sons went down the mountain, given that they are told to hold court and make any judgments necessary in Moses' absence. So the elders go down and Joshua and Moses go up. We learn in chapter 32 that Joshua didn't go all the way up. He waited partway for Moses to return. But from this point on in the story, all the way through to chapter 32, Moses is up on the mountain, receiving instructions and laws from God. That journey begins now in verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. This story is a marvel and a wonder all on its own, but as a Christian reading this story, of course I can't help but think of Jesus' journey up the mountain with his young assistants as recorded, for example, in Mark 9. We have the cloud, we have the voice of God, we have special revelation, and we have overwhelming presence. Moses appears in that story too, alongside Elijah, but at the end, they disappear And the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. As great as Moses was, as great as Elijah was, they all bow before the ultimate prophet, the ultimate teacher, the ultimate word from on high. Thanks be to God. Well, amen. Pastor Paul, this feels like a great place for us to have a little bit of a review conversation about the Christian and the law. We've hit on that a few times before, but it seems appropriate here too, because at the end of the podcast audio, you make reference to the story of the transfiguration in the New Testament. In the middle of that story, we have the great prophet Elijah and the great lawgiver Moses standing there talking to Jesus, and then all of a sudden, God speaks, they disappear. And when the terrified disciples open their eyes, there is only Jesus. That feels significant to me. Can you unpack that a bit? Yeah, you don't have to have been to seminary to get the sense that the Bible is saying something there. 
And, and I think the idea is that the job of Moses and Elijah, the job of the prophets and the law, was to point to Jesus. But now that Jesus is here, we need to listen to him. He is like the sun rising in the morning. And once his light is shining, you can't even see the moon and the stars anymore. They are silenced and muted by the overpowering brilliance of his presence. Yeah, but that doesn't mean we should just stop reading the Old Testament, though, does it? No, of course not. But we read it differently now. We, we read it, like you said earlier, as illustrations in advance. We read it so as to better understand and appreciate Jesus. We read it backwards through the lens of who he is and what he did to secure our salvation. Never read the Old Testament as if Jesus didn't come. Never read the questions as if you don't already know the answers. You do. Praise God, you know how this story ends. You know that because of Jesus, you don't have to fear the power and threat of the law. He walked the path. He paid the price. He unlocked the promises. Thanks be to God. Amen to that. And as always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 